And so on Monday, I go vegetarian. On Wednesday, I get the book. <laughs> Friday, I'm reading the book. And there was one passage where she interviewed a slaughterhouse worker. And he basically describes how he was so disconnected that there was a moment where there was a hog right in front of him. And he took, I think, a metal bar or something and just started beating it. And then he describes this one moment and he looks into the hog's eyes and he says something like, oh sweet Jesus, what on earth did I do? And that's how in that moment I felt about my entire life. Look at all these animals I've been eating all my life. I'm like, I'm like, oh dear Jesus, what did, what on earth did I do? But I was like, this is what I'm on this planet for. Like I need to tell people. Cause at that point I figured if I love meat and I love cheese and I love dairy and it takes one moment of awakening for me to change everything about my life, then the only thing that keeps other people is like, is that they don't know. That is just part of the story of how Kim Julie went from thinking that vegetarianism wasn't necessary to becoming a vegan activist. And this is Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. This week, I'd like to introduce you to Kim Julie Hansen, author of two outstanding vegan cookbooks and a creator behind one of the most popular vegan accounts on Instagram, at Best of Vegan. Perhaps you're thinking, oh no, not another story about another influencer, but before you scroll past this episode, indulge me a little bit because I got to tell you, despite knowing her for now nearly seven years, I found Kim Julie's story to be, in a word, riveting. There's a reason this episode is the longest yet, and in all candor, I could have listened to Kim Julie unwind another hour's worth of her tale. I only concluded our chat because our rears were growing a little numb from sitting in a pair of very stiff hotel chairs. Whether it's the fact that she left home without finishing high school, was convinced to go vegan after writing an essay on why veganism was stupid, or that she started her business practically by accident, I felt like I was reading a novel I simply didn't ever want to put down. But even beyond these well-worn milestones on the alpine path, discerning listeners will discover a story studded with both grief and resilience, and threading through it all, a profound respect and hope in what makes any of this worth it. Love. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing so great. I love that we're doing this in New York because it's like your old stomping grounds, yeah? Yeah. Because yeah. I know you spent a good chunk of your life actually living in this city. Seven years. Wow, yeah. wow. Well, before we got to New York City, because I definitely want to talk about your seven-year stint in mm -hmm. the Big Apple. Where were you coming from at that point? 
At that point, Brussels. Oh, okay. So I feel like every time I talk to you, you've lived in like 70 different countries, speak seven (laughs) different languages. I have no idea where you are at any given time. (laughs) Like when I'm texting you, I'm like, wait, what is the time difference of wherever she is right now? (laughs) In fact, right now you don't live in New York City. You're just visiting. Yes. Exactly, for a few months. Okay, and you're in Brussels? In Ostend, which is like an hour Ah, from Brussels. Got it, okay, okay. So you moved from Brussels to New York City, and when was this? This was in 2014. Okay, and in one of your iterations of social media, you were called Brussels Vegan, right? Yes, that's actually how it all started. Okay, so let's go back to how it all started. Why did you, why Brussels Vegan? So... Do you want to know why I started the account or why I called it that? Or both? I think both would be great. Okay, so it all started in <laughs> 2012, you know, when everyone was getting on Instagram. And I had a private account with, I think, about 22 followers, maybe 23. Oh, wow, you can remember the number. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I was pretty proud. <laughs> and one of my friends, Samia, one of my really good friends, I told her, I was like, I joined Instagram. How amazing is this? And she looked at me and she says, if you become one of those people who post pictures of what they eat on Instagram, I am never talking to you again. So I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is literally what everybody else is doing with Instagram. (laughs) Six months later, I was, I woke up craving eggs. Only problem. I was vegan. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, how can I recreate eggs? I made scrambled tofu. And it looked like eggs. So I took a picture and I couldn't post it for obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. And then I saw another friend of mine, Amina, who's still one of my best friends. And I showed it to her and I was like, look what I ate. And then she looks at me and she goes, why don't you post that on Instagram? And then I said, I can't. <laughs> and that's when I realized like, oh, what if I started an anonymous account? She'll uh, never know. Brilliant. <laughs> and, yeah. And then I was going to say, what could I call it? And I was like, well, I'm in Brussels and I'm vegan. Why don't I call it vegan in Brussels? And then that was taken. So I was like, okay, what about Brussels vegan? And that's how it started. Wow. Yeah. And then fast forward to a bit later, I started having a lot of people from the U.S. following me and I never got why until somebody said, I love Brussels sprouts too. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it all happened. Oh, wow. That's so honest, actually. (laughs) There's like no real thought to it. It's just like, hey, I want to share my tofu. You know, it makes sense too, the whole Brussels thing. So it's like, you know, it was perfect. Yeah. Are you originally from Brussels, though? What were you doing in Brussels at that so time? I'm, it's a little complicated. I'm technically speaking a quarter Belgian. Mm. So I was born in Berlin. I'm not German. <laughs> so on my dad's side, I'm Scandinavian and a little bit Irish and Frisian. And then on my mom's side, I'm Congolese, Belgian, and Scottish. Wow. So I was raised in... Berlin, but in kind of like a French-speaking environment. I went to French-speaking schools, and all of my mom's friends were foreigners. And then I left when I was 16. Okay. So you left Berlin when you were 16? Yes. And where did you go? New Zealand. Wow. And like 16, I think at least in America, most people are still under the roofs of their parents. So what inspired you to leave the safety so of I home? I found a loophole, two loopholes. So one, my my dad's mom passed away, so they uh-huh. sold her house. And then my part of the inheritance was 
exactly the amount I needed to buy a plane ticket. <laughs> wow. And then I asked if I could do like a study abroad thing. And they said, my school said no, like you had, you'd have to quit school. So I said, okay. <laughs> so you quit school? I quit school with the goal of eventually maybe finishing it, you know? And I went to New Zealand and it was great. <laughs> what did you do in New Zealand? I said, so because I was no longer enrolled in school, I could just do, I, I did go to a school there, but I had no requirements. So I did art and photography and design, <laughs> journalism, like things like that. So you kind of tried whatever inspired you, interested you in that moment? Yeah. Did you have a goal in mind or like a plan? I was 16. Like my only goal was <laughs> to get out of I did not. I did not enjoy living in Germany. Mm -hmm. Now I have a newfound appreciation, especially for the language, the culture. But at the time, I was just not happy. And so it kind of was very serendipitous because if, if it wasn't for my grandmother, I, we never could have afforded the plane ticket. And so, yeah, so that's how... It kind of all happened. How did your parents feel about their 16-year-old daughter skipping the country, dropping school, <laughs> no plan? <laughs> I say I was a little... So I had actually left home at 15. Oh, okay. So it was kind of... I was still on good terms. Like, it was... I was on good terms with my dad and on semi-good terms with my mom. And it was more like they, there's nothing they could do about it because I was very... Independent already. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, where were you when you were 15 years old that you were not with your parents? So I was in a very tiny studio apartment. And at the time in Berlin, rent was extremely uh, cheap. So it was like 200 a month. And you were working? And I was, it was close to where my dad, like, he kind of like, I wanted to live with him, but he preferred getting a studio so he could have his life. Uh, <laughs> and I did still go to school. So it was... It, it sounds like looking back, it sounds way more exciting than it was. At the time, I was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> You're 15 years old. You get your own studio yeah. apartment. Also, that scenario was cheaper for my dad than to get like a bigger, bigger. place that would include me. So, and I like, I loved it. That's amazing. So you live close to your dad, then it sounds like. Yes. Were you close to your father? We were very, very similar. How so? And made it very difficult at times uh, and he he passed away I think about 12 years ago now and I've learned after he died to have a great relationship with him like it, it feels almost strange when I say it but yeah. I have a much better relationship with him now uh, than I did when he was alive why do you think that is because I needed therapy <laughs> and it's kind of I think it's easier to process things when you're not expecting the other person to participate in fixing things because uh, when they're dead they're they literally can't and then it's like I don't know somehow it made it easier and it gave me I was able to see past all the emotions and just appreciate him for who he was yeah you know yeah well, that's really beautiful and I've heard that from a couple of people mm. who've had sort of fraught relationships with their parents and they're like I love my parents so much more mm. ironically now that they've passed away because they can't hurt me anymore you know and and there's something to that is well now that I don't have to be afraid of them of yeah. their ability to hurt me I can be at peace with them and accept them you know when you're constantly being injured it's hard to accept you know what's you know sometimes the cause of that injury however inadvertent or not on purpose or well-intentioned it might be it's still harder sometimes yeah it's sometimes hard to explain to people who have great relationships with their parents 
And also to explain the nuance of it, because just because some things were difficult doesn't mean it was all bad. Mm. And it doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't appreciate them. But it was definitely, he had his struggles. And I, I honestly don't think, I remember when he died, my mom said something interesting. Some Somebody, some friends of our family said they couldn't come to the funeral because they were going on vacation. And then she was like, yeah, I think that's where he probably is too. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's somewhere else. Mm. I think he found more peace afterwards, mm. you know, than he ever did when mm-hmm. he was alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you found more peace too. With time and a lot of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> well, therapy can be very effective yeah. in that regard. <laughs> so going back to your timeline, you're 16 years old, you're in New Zealand, you're taking classes and, you know, yeah. still educating yourself. Were you working as well in New Zealand? No, because I, was, I wasn't allowed to because right. I was not from there. And I was living with, at one point, this lady, Judy, who was an absolute angel. She was part Maori and which like the Maori culture in New Zealand they were so welcoming and I learned so much and I'm so, so, so appreciative for that. And, and yeah, that was, that really just, I don't know. I felt so at home there mm, mm. and yeah. I How long were you there? A year. Oh, so you were only there for a year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you go back to Belgium or I'm sorry, Berlin or? I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. And, then, and also I was living at one point with a few Brazilian girls who were in the same house. Because I lived in three different houses while I was there. And then one of them was with Brazilian friends, one of whom, Fernanda, is still, she's like family. And so at the end of the year, I was like, I don't want to go back. Mm. And so she said, come to Brazil, stay with my family. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I wouldn't have been able, like, again, this is just all serendipitous and obviously a lot of privilege too. Can't deny that. And I went to the travel agency that my ticket was through and I asked what changes can I make without paying anything extra? Mm. And so they said, well, right now you're going, you know, this way. I don't know if it was east or west, but you're going this way around the world. Mm -hmm. You could go the other way (laughs) and then you could stop in Brazil. And so I was like, okay. So I did that. Oh, wow. And then I told my parents I was going to do that. And they were okay with it? They had no choice. Yeah. Even though they didn't have any choice but to accept it, did they have any misgivings, warnings, like, honey, we really want you to be close to us. Please come home. No, I think my mom was a little terrified. (laughs) She asked to speak to my friend. That's a very mom thing to do, yes. My dad was like, oh, cool. Well, he sounds like a free spirit. Definitely. So you might have even been a little jealous. Well, that's cool. So... Let's see. Then at 17, you moved to Brazil. Yes, for just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I didn't technically didn't move there because I feel like if you only spent mm. a few months there, it's not really moving. But I spent a few months there. And then I realized I think I should get a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to Berlin, spent two more years there, got my high school diploma, and then I left again. And where'd you go this time? So then I was like, you know, I told... Because my... Parents had both traveled extensively when they were younger, and neither of them had money. So they had all the tools. <laughs> so uh. I asked my mom, and I was like, you know, I want to travel. And then she told me that when she was younger, she worked as an au pair. And I was like, don't love children <laughs> or anything else. And then she said for six years she worked in hotels. Uh. And so I applied and got a job in France. And then with that same company, I ended up working with them for two years. 
So I did France, Italy, and Egypt. One of the things I found so fascinating about Kim Julie's story was how free she felt to try a bunch of different things at such a young age, whether it was dropping out of school to travel, living in an entirely different country from her home and parents, or finding a job that allowed her to continue her boho style. Kim Julie's fearlessness was, quite frankly, a little alien to me. I discovered that a lot of these differences between our approach to life can be attributed to not just her parents, but also the fact that we were raised in, well, entirely different parts of the world. So I think what's so interesting is that, again, coming from an American background and being here, growing up here, I never believed I had any sort of choice Mm -hmm. after high school. Of course you're going to college. Like, what are you even like, no, like that's not, there's no room for anything else. I feel like many people in America, certainly of my generation, it was like that. There, there was a vector straight forward into college and, you know, possibly even post-grad and, and adultism. How did you have this sort of wherewithal and freedom and permission to be like, you yeah, know, I don't want to go to college? I think a lot of it has to, now that I've lived in both like systems and and I know a lot of people from the US and even you know even when I lived in Europe I knew a lot of students from the US I think it's money to be very honest with you because education is free in Europe so in I think in in the states there the stakes are really really high <laughs> right cuz I mean we're we're going into like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt yeah right so it's like the sooner you invest the better. And then as soon as you have, you've invested that into yourself or your parents have or whoever or student loans, or you better start working right away because uh, you now you have to either pay it off or make, you know, get your return. return. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I think in Europe, there's kind of like this, like very relaxed attitude about studying. It's like also in Belgium, I have to say, I personally love that system, but freshman year, they accept everyone. Really? Everyone. It doesn't, even if you don't have a high school diploma, because uh. their whole philosophy is, for instance, if, and also scholarships are never, ever merit-based. Oh, they're all need-based. It's basically scholarship in Belgium is the word for financial aid. Mm-hmm. Because they say, you know, like someone whose parents can afford getting them a tutor, of course, they're going to have a better chance than someone who has to work while. Got it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you did ask before if I was working. I was actually, all throughout high school, I was working, you know, summers and then some odd jobs, but not like... Full time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so everyone is accepted. And then I think about 30 to 40% make it into the second year. But because you don't lose money, it's like, you know, I did that too. <laughs> you you'd do like one year of something and then it's like, oh, I don't really love that. And then you just switch and, you know, and it's it's all good. And you just, there are some people... Because, for instance, in Germany, the system is you have wait semesters. Mm. So, for instance, you need you need like a certain grade in order to get into a very popular program. I see. And then for every semester that you wait, you get an extra point. Oh, wow. So they want you to yeah. take your time. No, it's not that. It's just that they're like, oh, you deserve to do that. But uh, those who got better grades deserve to do it. Now. I see. I see. So mm-hmm. a lot of people end up just getting a whole other degree while they're waiting. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> unbelievable. Like else wants to do. Right. So I think generally speaking in Europe, there's this like attitude of like, let's, yeah, let's just get another like, for instance, I had a conversation with a group of American college students, and one of them was trying to decide whether or not they should get a master's. And I said, well, do you want one? They're like, of course. I'm like, 
then what's the <laughs> what's the hold up? Yeah. Like, oh, it's gonna cost me fifty thousand. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, in Europe, it's kind of like, well, if you want to do it, do it. You know, so because not only is it free, but when you don't have the means, you actually get money. Mm -hmm. So So I'm taking it then when you told your parents, hey, I I just want to travel. What's the most expedient way of doing that? They weren't like, go to school. (laughs) Neither of my parents had like my mom's my mom never got to finish high school. She was, you know, she left a war-torn country when she was little like she she's dyslexic so for her her only goal for me was get a diploma sometime but Mm -hmm. only the only reason she wanted that is in case I was ever in a situation that I needed to leave so that I wouldn't have to depend on a man financially like Mm -hmm. that was the only thing it's like she didn't even care what I studied I don't think she knows to this day what I'm (laughs) in. it's okay that was like Whatever isn't going to cost me anything, I will support. So both very practical considerations yeah. for your future. One wants you to be self-sufficient and the other one wants to make sure it doesn't hit exactly. the bottom line. <laughs> All right. So you traveled around then for this hospitality job yeah. and that was for six years? No, for two years. Oh, two years. Okay. And what was that like? It was amazing. I honestly, I loved it. it it's one of those jobs that nowadays people would be like, oh my God, like you have no free time. (laughs) It's it's definitely exploitative. (laughs) I learned so much and compare, somebody said to me, one of my colleagues while I was working there, she said, oh yeah, because after every season that you work, they give you a few options. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, now you can go to Turkey or you can go here. And then you have to kind of choose. And they offered me Sicily after my first season and Sicily, the hotel there is known to be, it's huge. It's like thousands of guests and so many children and it's nonstop. And one of my colleagues said, I worked there. She said, it's hell. But if you do that, then whatever you do in your life after that is going to seem like a vacation to you. Ah, so even though it was in Sicily, it was not. It, the... was, it was a lot of work. Okay. <laughs> a lot of work. It was really like we had, we barely had any time off. Was it like the White Lotus situation? I haven't watched that. Oh, okay. Well, I would be very interested to, to yeah. see what your reaction is to that hospitality environment. But to be honest with you, in terms of like now that I have responsibilities and, you know, I'm a grown up, it was actually kind of perfect. And I don't think I realized how perfect it is because you don't get paid a lot. Mm. I think my salary after taxes was like 800 a month. Oh, wow. Yeah. But you don't like they pay for your transportation. They pay for your you live in a hotel room. You live in that hotel that Uh, other people pay thousands a week for. mm -hmm. You live in the most beautiful environment, like right by the beach. You eat at a restaurant three times a day. You never have to cook. You don't have to worry about any bills. Wow. The money you have is pocket money. Amazing. And you get like in between seasons, you get a good amount of time off and then you can just do whatever you want. So in that sense, it was kind of amazing. It sounds like a resort, actually. You also had to, like, work sometimes up to, like, 18 hours a day. Okay. Okay. So there's the exploitative part. Yeah. It it was, yeah. I have to say it it was great because even the work part, I mean, a lot of it was exhausting, but a lot of it was fun. Mm -hmm. And you got to meet so many amazing people. And then work-wise, if you had ambition, 
you could just tell your supervisor, you know, this is what I'm aiming for. And then I got promoted every season because I asked for it, you know, and then they pay for your training. Mm -hmm. So then after two years I was there, I had a little bit of money saved up, just a little bit because that wasn't good. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I had this new training and I had two years of experience. So I think it's brilliant for young people who have no money. Like when I say no money, I think I had like $10 in Mm -hmm. my bank account Mm -hmm. when I applied. So, and they paid for the ticket, they paid for everything. So young people who want to travel, but have no money, who want to gain work experience and who want to have free training and also who just want to like see the world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did you learn Italian while you were out there? Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. And the people there were so amazing. Your colleagues and everyone. Like it was just like, yeah, the culture, the people that's, I think was my favorite part. The people I met there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine. So you were there for two years. What made you decide, all right, I'm done with this luxury living (laughs) in Sicily. (laughs) I was in Egypt. Okay. How did you end up in Egypt? That was the last season. Ah. uh I did love it. I have to say that was my first real encounter with sexism. Okay. I now realize that sexism has always been there, but in a way that made me consciously say, oh, they're treating me this way because I'm a woman. And I will say it's not the Egyptian part because there were so many Egyptian people, including men, who were absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. It was certain sexist individuals within that, you know, and that could have happened anywhere. So mm-hmm. it was definitely, I have so much appreciation for Egypt and its culture. But in my specific case, out of 230 people working in a hotel, we were five women. Oh, wow. Isolating. And I had a job where I had, I was somebody's supervisor. It took me a while to understand, you know, why they were doing things like transferring calls to my cell phone at 3 a.m., you know, like little things like that or or telling me, yeah, we'll do that and then not doing it. Yeah. And it wasn't that it was like the biggest problem on earth. It just made me feel like oh, I don't really want to be here anymore. And suddenly I found myself dreaming of going to university. Oh, just like that. I had always known I wanted to do mm-hmm. it, but then all of a sudden I was like, I think I want to do it now. The good thing about the Belgian system is that the semester starts September 15th around, and you, you can register because you don't apply because you just register because you get in anyways until September 30th. Thus far, it seems like Kim Julie's wanderlust is simply the manifestation of her love of adventure. Some people are born with it, and some people are born with an overdeveloped aversion to all risk. But as Kim Julie explains, anytime you start a new chapter, you must put the other one behind you. And sometimes you might do so prematurely. So I guess this is part of my question because you were born in Berlin, you lived in Berlin, you went to New Zealand, then you went to Brazil, then you kind of traveled for your job. What led you to Belgium? So I've since, thanks to therapy, found out that my coping mechanism (laughs) was to just leave my life behind Uh, and start a whole new one. And a totally new place. new place, and that's like so great. (laughs) No more baggage. (laughs) My therapist and I were laughing. I mean, I was laughing. I hope she was too. About it, how it's like, it's a pretty cool coping mechanism. So I don't really, because I still do that. So I don't really feel the need to fix it, but I realized that that's what I was doing. 
But essentially, it was really, for me, it was, okay, I want to go to university. What are the options? What's the easiest for me to get into? And Germany was not an option for me because I just... Didn't want to go back? <laughs> I have to say, a lot of it is the result of having a mother who's an immigrant and who hated being there. Uh... So ever since I was little, she, all she would do is, you know, say, like, don't be German. Don't... And then be very surprised when I said I didn't want to live in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hilarious because now she's become so German. Mm-hmm. Naturally, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I, again, I have also appreciation for, it's not Germany, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> or your mom. <laughs> it's actually funny because I almost feel like I've erased that part of my identity so much so that to this day, there are a bunch of German bloggers I've been speaking to for almost 10 years who still have no idea how to speak German. Oh. <laughs> but it's, it's, so I've never, ever felt at home there, ever. And I have family in Belgium. My grandmother lives there, and she's the most amazing person, my, you know, the love of my life. It's very one-sided. <laughs> she loves all of hers. It's just because she has so many of them. Mm-hmm. But she is my, she's my everything. I absolutely adore her. And so because I grew up far away from my family, that part of the family, and especially her, it kind of like gave me the opportunity during college and grad school, almost every weekend, I would go spend time with her. Uh, And so now I'm so, so grateful for that. Was that something that was specific, like an intention of yours? Hey, I need to go to university. Belgium has a great program. And while I'm out there, I'm going to specifically see my grandmother at least once a week. It was initially, it was like, oh, my whole family. Uh, And then I realized, oh, they're so used to me not being around that it was kind of like, oh, you know, I'll be closer to them. But it wasn't like they were waiting their whole lives for me to finally move there. And then I think with time, I would spend more and more time with her. And I just appreciated it so much that I, you know, really, really cherished it. What do you think led to having such a great symbiotic relationship with your grandma when the other sort of parental figures in your life were maybe a little detached? So one of the reasons is that I think my mother is very unique. She has great qualities. She's also not always the easiest. Mm-hmm. But one of her things is that she sometimes has a little bit of a delusional way of looking at certain things. Listening to my mother when I was growing up and her talking about her relationship with her mother, you would have assumed that my mother was an only child and that my grandmother didn't work. Like all she did was take care of my mother. My mother had five siblings. <laughs> my grandmother was worked seven days a week. So it was, I think it was very much what she created in her mind. But I think she was trying, I realized very early on, oh, this is what she wants me to mirror. She uh, wants me to idolize her the way she idolizes, idolizes her mom. But instead, I also idolized her mother. Naturally, yeah. And also, my, but anyone who meets my grandmother would agree like she just is absolutely fabulous she's a little mean and I, <laughs> I told her that recently and she started laughing she's like I like that mean. well I think sometimes if you win over mean people quote mean I'm putting yeah. that in and scare quotes it's, it's like 
well, now that I've won them over, I can count on it. You know what I mean? Like I can rely on their loyalty, their presence in my life and their love. Like it's strong because it took a, a little bit to get to that point where we can have that kind of relationship. Yeah, no, that's true. But with her, it's more the meanness is kind of like a nice little quirk. Like I don't think anyone else would characterize her. <laughs> Everybody just loves her. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So you were in school then for how many years? Six years. Oh, wow. That's like pretty long for Kim Julie year. <laughs> yeah. And also in Belgium, you have to declare your major before you start. Oh. And then you can't switch. Okay. If you want to switch, you have to do the year. Like you start new year. Start, I, I decided I was going to do psychology. And so I did two semesters of psychology and then realized I should do therapy. <laughs> I studied psychology. <laughs> I did that. But then I had to wait till the year was over. And I remember there was one moment I was sitting in one of my psychology classes. And it was, you know, it wasn't, I loved clinical psychology, but I didn't realize there were going to be so many science y things. And, Statistics and yeah, yeah. I was in one of those classes. And I remember just thinking, this is so boring. And then looking around and everybody else looked fascinated and passionate. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm wrong here. And then I had this thought of like, all I want to do is read books. That's all I want to do with my life right now. And so I switched majors and I went into literature. Makes sense. And modern languages. And then I did that. So in Europe, bachelor degrees are three years. So I did that for three years, and then I got a two-year master's degree. Wow, wow. What inspired you to pursue literature even after your bachelor's degree? Like, why did I get my... Yeah, the master's. Mm -hmm. It just made sense, and I really wanted to. Like, I was just, like, I loved going to school. I loved studying. And I actually, if it wasn't for the whole vegan thing, <laughs> I would have continued. I was, I was about to start my PhD. Wow. And I told my professor I had to go to New York and eat fruit. <laughs> and he just looked at me and said, I had such high hopes for you. Oh my God. Great. <laughs> he was right. He was right. And then I told him I would come back, but I didn't. Well, I think the fact that you were there for six years, mm -hmm. staying in the same program, studying the same thing, yeah. I think that speaks to probably a lot of growth that happened during that time. Because when you do stay in one place for a little bit, there's a little bit of room for introspection, planning, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about your next move. Whereas if you're constantly on the go, you're, you're just, you know, you're just moving. Like what was going on during that time in six years where you felt comfortable enough to stay in one place? I think there are many different things. First of all, I found I was so lucky to find an apartment I really liked. And rent in Belgium is very is, is relatively cheap compared to the US. And I got a job as soon as I arrived. First month I got the apartment, I got a job part-time. And then over the years I had a few different jobs, but I was always, always working, at least part-time, sometimes several jobs. And I had a very I don't want to say comfortable, I had a life where I wasn't lacking anything and, mm. and I do sometimes miss that because I really I didn't need much you know I had my little apartment I had the university I had my friends I had it was just very nice and it was something that was mine you know I loved that Brussels was kind of like my city as compared to Berlin always felt like that's my parent that's the city that they chose because neither of them were from Berlin 
And it never felt like mine, but Brussels felt like home. Do you think your grandmother being there had something to do with she that? About an hour outside of us, but I, I think so to a certain extent. Yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. having that sort of home base in a person, even and, if not a home. And culturally speaking, even though I didn't love being in Germany, I was a lot like. Germany. <laughs> <laughs> very, very harsh, you know, way of very confrontational. Mm-hmm. I still love confrontation, <laughs> but it's very, you know, like a lot of like yelling at people and here and that. And the best way I found to describe it, and obviously this is just, this is me generalizing, it doesn't mean that everyone is like that, but in my head it was like that. In Germany, if somebody bumps into you, they yell at you for being in the way. Mm. In Belgium, if you bump into someone, they apologize for being in the way. Got it. And to me, that was very shocking because I would come at them with my, you know, aggressive side and they would just be like, Oh, okay. And I think that helped me to kind of calm down and just enjoy being there and not always be so combative. And I really, really enjoyed it. Like, I really loved living there. So in case you missed it, after gallivanting across the globe for so much of her life, Kim Jolie was on the brink of pursuing a PhD, the highest academic degree available, after six full years of study. And then... She decides to give that all up to go to New York City. Again, as someone who has a very hard time letting go of goals, even when the finish line starts to look a little less attractive than I imagined, I was curious how she derived the gumption to say goodbye to something she'd worked at for so long. So if you loved living there, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you found a modicum of peace there and comfort, even family, and you're pursuing a PhD, which takes tremendous commitment in every way, intellectually, financially, all of those things. What made you decide to drop everything at the 11th hour and decide, I've got to go to New York now? So I was extremely impulsive and I believed my visions, like this sounds a little too esoteric, but I believed that when I could visualize something, that it was a sign that I needed to pursue it. And so simultaneously, I had gone vegan. And then about a year before leaving Brussels is when I started, you know, posting on Instagram and getting into the whole fruit-based world at first, which, you know, seems like a different life. (laughs) And there was a moment when I did, I don't know what it was, some kind of like, not necessarily like a physical detox, but like I was doing like no technology and then this, and I had a vision. I looked at my apartment and I saw it empty and I saw me standing in it with a backpack and not in the sense that I wanted to go backpacking, but it just happened to be a backpack. But I was like, oh, I think I want to travel again. Mm. I think I missed that feeling. And so I made that a reality. So I decided I was going to leave. And that's how I ended up going to New York at first. I was there for five days. And on the fifth day, I was like, I don't think I can ever leave. That is a very common feeling once you get to New York for the first time. That's the funny part, though. It wasn't my first time. It was my third time. Oh, really? The first two times, I was very underwhelmed. I didn't get it. And then the third time, I was like, now I get it. As you can tell, Kim Jolie is a natural storyteller. 
Of all the stories she shares, though, the following one about how she became vegan is probably one of my favorites. As of 2012, you were vegan. So you... 2011. 2011. So that's when you went vegan back in Brussels. What inspired that change in your life? It's funny because I I wrote about it in the introduction of the new book, but it's it all started when I took a vegetarian to a steakhouse. <laughs> wow. Okay, this is a wonderful story. So, <laughs> I was in Ghent. I was doing like a summer program at the University of Ghent, and there were people from all over the world. So we had all just met, so neither none of us kind of knew each other well yet. And there was a group of us that had formed, I think maybe 10, 15 people who just... It wasn't that we like, we just happened to all be standing there. So we all decided, I think on the second night, let's all go out for dinner. And then somebody had to volunteer to make the reservations. I said me and then we decided on Italian and, you know, and then I go back to my room and I call the restaurant and it's closed. Uh. So I look on the map and the restaurant right next to it was a steakhouse. Well, you know, who doesn't like steak? (laughs) Just the vegetarians. I didn't know any vegetarians. Mm -hmm. Although my dad was pescatarian, but that's a whole different story. So I called the steakhouse, made a reservation. Everybody, we met up in front of the Italian place. And I announced, I said, you know, they're closed, so we're going to the steakhouse. And one guy looked at me and his face just went blank. And I was like, what? You don't like steak? (laughs) What's wrong? And then he looks at me and says, I'm vegetarian. And I was like, oh, Mm. and I felt so sorry. And it was just a scene where we had this long table and he and I were both sitting in the middle. And just imagine to my right, to my left and to my right, people just devouring ribs and steaks. Everybody loved it. And then him, they gave him the only option. Yeah, it was like a side cycle, like I think like iceberg lettuce. That's exactly the stereotype, yeah. They had maybe like a frozen veggie burger, but like the, you know, the old school veggie where you can see the pieces of carrot. (laughs) And then I, I started asking him questions and I was like, is it weird for you to have all these people? And he was like, I mean, it's not like I love it. (laughs) And then I said, what what about protein? And because at that point, I was convinced that we're at the top of the food chain. You know what they had always taught us that we need meat. I just didn't understand. And I said, what what do you do for this? And then why are you doing this? And then he said, it's just not necessary. And I was like, oh. And then from then on, we were there for a month. And then one day we went into the the university's cafeteria and the line was out the door. And I look around the corner and there was a vegetarian counter. There was no one. So I'm like, you know what, let me try. So I went and I tried and I showed him and he was like, great. (laughs) Good for you. And then a few days later, I went into a bookstore and I saw this book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. And I bought it. I read the first page, I closed it, I said, I'm not ready. <laughs> uh. And I put it aside for a while, for a few months. And then fast forward a few months later, I had a debate class. And college was my senior year of college. And so I had a debate class. And the professor told us, I want you to choose a topic. You're going to have to write an essay, and then you're going to have to defend the topic. But I want you to choose something that you are not passionate about. Because if you're very religious and you're arguing about your religion, like there's, there can't be any real arguing. So we need this to be something you're emotionally distanced from. So I remembered that book. And so I called my essay, what did I call it? 
vegetarianism is not necessary. Why vegetarianism is not necessary. Wow. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, I was convinced that I, that I may read certain things I didn't like, but I was still convinced that it wasn't going to make me go vegetarian ever. But I have to stop you there because his rationale for why he went vegetarian was, well, because it's not necessary. Meat isn't necessary. So the title of your essay was basically, well, actually being vegetarian isn't necessary. It wasn't so much to counter him. Mm -hmm. I think I didn't even connect the dots at first. It was just, I just, that's why I wasn't vegetarian because Mm. I didn't think that was necessary. And I think I was going to argue something like, you can just be part-time, you know, it's like, and then I read the book. Because <laughs> you had to for the essay? Yes. So I read the book. I was at my grandma's house. I'm halfway through the book. I look at my grandma and I say, I have this weird feeling that I may have to go vegetarian at the end of this book. Wow. And she was like, just my lunch. is your chicken. <laughs> <laughs> it ended up being the last piece of meat I ever ate. I... I think what is so amazing about what you described was when you read that first page Mm -hmm. and you knew I'm not ready Mm -hmm. right now. So I'm going to close this book. But in saying that I'm not ready, there was an acknowledgement that maybe at some point you might be. Yes. How did you know that you were at that point? Now I am ready to make this somewhat radical change in my life. Well, I wasn't. I just figured at that point, now I'm not reading it for myself. I'm reading it for research. Mm. So now I have no moral obligation to do what he's telling me in that book, you know? And then I was wrong. And so I eat that chicken. And and even like as I was eating it, I was like, I remember in the book, there is a page where it's just a blank page. And at the bottom, he says, this is the amount of space a chicken has in a factory farm. Oh, my gosh. And then I'm eating this chicken. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, you know? And then I was like, you know what? Vegan, I could never, never, ever. And But vegetarian, you know, I could give it a try. And so that was on a Sunday. On Monday, I'm like, it's official. I'm vegetarian. Announced it to everyone who didn't ask. <laughs> supermarket and my first thought was this is actually really really easy because you can still eat cheese and eggs and it's like you just you just replace (laughs) (laughs) I was almost like oh kind of disappointed that it wasn't more hard (laughs) I'm continuing my research for my essay and then somebody quoted a book called Slaughterhouse by Gail Eisnitz I've actually since contacted Gail and I told her all this and she was so amazing so basically, Gail Eisnitz is a woman who many years ago went undercover mm. in factory farms and slaughterhouses. I think mostly slaughterhouses. And she just, I think for three years, and she interviewed people working there. And so on Monday, I go vegetarian. On Wednesday, I get the book. <laughs> Friday, I'm reading the book. Mm. And there was one passage where she interviewed a slaughterhouse worker and he basically describes how he was so disconnected. And I think you really, really have to. Absolutely. And the science bears that out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was so disconnected that there was a moment where there was a hog right in front of him. And he took, I think, a metal bar or something and just started beating it. Mm. And then he describes this one moment And he looks into the hog's eyes and he says something like, oh, sweet Jesus, what on earth did I do? Mm. And that's how in that moment I felt about my entire life. I was like, look at all these animals I've been eating all my life. I'm like, I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, what did, what on earth did I do? 
in that moment, I was like, and I had a moment where I felt, now I think it was a little bit dramatic, <laughs> but I was like, this is what I'm on this planet for. Like, I need to tell people. Because at that point, I figured if I love meat and I love cheese and I love dairy and it takes one moment of awakening for me to change everything about my life, then the only thing that keeps other people is like, is that they don't know. They haven't had that moment. So I made it my mission to tell everyone. <laughs> and and I, I, I have to say, I was probably a little, and by little, I mean very militant in the beginning. Like the first Christmas, I think I bought 25 copies of that book and just gave it to my whole family. Hey, you're spreading the word. And I mean, how old were you at that time? I was 20. Three, oh, brimming with passion yeah. and yeah. Mm -hmm. And I and then I got so frustrated because I would tell people I would read it to them <laughs> and they didn't have the same reaction. And I was like, what am, what what on earth? And every conversation was so draining because I was like, what else do I need to tell you? But like going back to that moment. So this was Friday night. So Saturday, I'm like, I am vegan. <laughs> Not just vegetarian. I'm vegan. And I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I, I knew no vegans. I was convinced I was going to die of deficiency. Like, and that all I was going to be able to eat was like rice crackers and hummus. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so the first day I go to go to my to a gathering at my aunt's, my godmother's place, and my cousin Caroline, who's probably going to listen to this, she was there, and I hadn't seen her in a while. She lives in Canada. And she, she hands me this platter with salami and cheese. And she's like, here, your favorite. And I look at her, I'm like, I can't. I'm vegan. And she's like, since when? Since <laughs> today. And she's like, can you wait till tomorrow? <laughs> oh, my God. I know that there are like 70 billion people right now are listening to this. I mean, like, I can attest to this exact same thing happening. <laughs> and, and I was like, I guess I could. But then, you know, morally, I can't. So I, I was strong and I did it. And I was like, you know, and that I think was the most difficult day. And then it was just easy. And then I started, you know, doing research. And I was like, Oh, this actually, and it, it wasn't even about health for me. Like it was never, it took me years to even find an element of health to it. Cause I felt like my veganism has nothing to do with health, mm -hmm. but for me to realize, oh, this doesn't have to be like detrimental to my health. And then I also discovered vegan comfort food and that made it so easy, mm -hmm. which at the beginning was very limited. Cause it was like, you know, rice cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy. And then there was one guy in my school, Diego, he was this, he was this, someone in my school that I had just randomly met through, I think we had a movie theater club, like we, you know, at my school. So we had met two weeks before. And the first week I'm vegan, I go out with a bunch of people and then I hear him say, oh, I'm vegan now. I'm like, what? And there's another one. Oh, there's another one, yes. And I'm like, since when? And he's like, oh, like a week ago. And I'm like, oh my God, me too. And then we kind of like, at the beginning, we had each other to kind of like, you know, we would sometimes cook together. And, and it was just, you know, fun to know one other vegan. Yes. Community. Yeah. <laughs> I think it took at least like two years for me to meet another vegan. Oh, wow. Wow. That is isolating. Well, I think that story 
is remarkable insofar as all of this was sparked by an Italian restaurant that was closed. Can you imagine if they were up and open? They had been open. We, we may not even be sitting here together right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank God for that. By now, you all are familiar with the story of how going plant-based can turn a lawyer into a cookbook writer. Kim Julie tells us how her own decision to go vegan swung open a door she hadn't even been knocking at. So you go vegan. Mm -hmm. It takes you two years to meet another one. <laughs> and you decide, I have to start traveling again. What made you pick New York City of all the different places in the world? Two reasons. First reason, so I had joined Instagram a year prior. And at that point, I'm just a regular vegan, right? So I start checking out the vegan accounts. And everybody's raw vegan. <laughs> and I was like, are you all eating fruit? Like, what? Why? And also, I was a very picky eater growing up. And before going vegan, I was I lived off of frozen pizza. Like It was just, you know, so fruits and vegetables were very foreign to me. <laughs> to this vegan. <laughs> yeah. And then so I'm like, I want to do what they're doing. So I go into a supermarket and I buy all these fruits. And I remember that I hate <laughs> what I did. And is I would start, I was very, not very, but I was somewhat artistic. So I would take a knife and I would just cut the fruits into like patterns. <laughs> That's nice. On the plate. And one of those patterns went viral. And that is how it all started. On Instagram. Yes. Me hating fruit. <laughs> you know? And so you had to make it more palatable. And then, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then at one point I was like, you know, I'm going to have to start somehow. And then I had this little food processor. I think it was like even like a emergency stick blender. It was really like a $10 thing. And I, I thought I had invented smoothies. <laughs> Because I was like, what if I blend them? Add vegan, vegan yogurt. And then little by little, I started liking. And it's fruits and vegetables, which is now so weird. Now I love them. Still love the comfort food. But yeah, so that's how it all kind of started. And then the question, I think, was completely different. <laughs> well, how does this lead to New York so City? I find out about something called, there's a fruit festival in New York, in upstate New York. Ah. And I was like, and they had a payment plan so and I had you know my little side jobs and so I was like oh if there's a payment plan you know I can like and I'm, I know a year in advance I'm gonna go so I signed up and it was also like very it was like we we're sleeping in bunk beds you know it was like at a like a campsite mm. it wasn't like a you know like a luxury resort and but it was great and it was near a lake and so I knew I was going to have to go to New York and my friend Fernanda who's the Brazilian girl who lived in New Zealand with me she had moved to New York. Oh, so you had a friend there. <laughs> so I I told, you know, I was like, oh, I'll be in town. So I was going to stay with her for a few days and then go to that festival. And that's how it kind of, and then I traveled around for a bit. And then I kept coming back to New York until uh, I finally was able to just say, this is my next, yeah. my next stop. Okay. Yeah. So you moved to New York and you're no longer a PhD candidate, right? Well, I was never, I was about to. Oh, you were, okay, so you were about to. enrolled in, a, in the PhD yeah. program. Did you have any intention to continue pursuing a degree in literature in New York City? I, no, 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 that not. But I had a moment where I was thinking about it. And so these two things are happening at the same time. I'm thinking of that. And I had started an Instagram account a year before, where all of a sudden people I had, I didn't know were interested in what I had to say. As a result of the viral fruit cutting? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it was interesting to me. And then and then I read a book, I can't remember what it was called, but I think the, the author's name is Chris Yubo, something like that. 
And he wrote, I think it's something like The Art of Being Unconventional, mm. something like that. And I read that book. My friend Yamina recommended it. And in that book, he describes his decision to not pursue a master's degree. He also had, you know, the money reasoning because it was expensive. In Europe, it's free. So that wasn't a cut. That wasn't like something I was thinking about. But he described that he had started a blog at the same time. And then he said that one of his blog posts was read by 100,000 people. And then he was like, what is my goal in life? Do I want to impact people or do I want to impress certain people? Like it's, you know, or will that degree help me do more? But if that degree is supposed to get me in front of these 100,000 people that I already have, you know, what's the point? And then he said, should I spend a year or more of my life working in a library, studying, and then defend a thesis in front of one, maybe two professors and write something that maybe four people are going to read ever? Or do I just use this audience that I have and really try and have an impact? And so I had started a vegan challenge, like a one-week vegan challenge. And it was supposed to be one of my jobs was working with U.S. college students. And two of them asked something about veganism. Oh, no, actually, it was much better than that. We had a mixer, mm. and I was in charge of the drink tickets, and they loved it because drinking age is much lower. In, in Europe, Europe, yeah. And so each of them was, was going to get, I think, two drink t- tickets. So this was not in New York then? This was in Brussels. Uh-huh. And one of the guys, like, after his second drink, he's like, oh, can you, can you give me another drink ticket? Like, I won't tell. And I'm like, no, of course not. And then he goes, I'll go vegan for a day. And then I said, make it a week. And he goes, Okay. So I traded a <laughs> drink ticket for, and then all of a sudden I hear saying, I'll do it too. And I'm like, all these drunk kids. And then they really did it. How did you know that they really did it? Oh, they, we went on like grocery shopping trips. We cooked together. Oh like, my God. And so I posted on Instagram and I said, you know, this group of students, they want to do that. And I'm going to send them an email with some recommendations. If any of you, and at that time, you know, I had maybe 20,000 followers, which was amazing. That's you know? huge. Yeah. And so, and I said, if any of you want to go vegan with us for a week, send me an email and I'll send you that email too. And I woke up to, I think, 1,200 emails. Are you serious? And that was the moment when I do that, you know, that I compared the two situations in, in his book and then my situation. I was like, the PhD is much longer than his MA. <laughs> it's like, do I really want to spend the next few years of my life? writing on something, but, you know, working on something that is so important to me, but that no one's ever really going to read, or do I do this? And so I decided. How long did it take you to decide that? Like a day. See, this is amazing. (laughs) This is incredible because I feel like there are so many people out there who would be like, yeah, but it's a PhD. I've been working on it for a long time. And they would have, you know, so I had worked on like the MA and the BA, but I hadn't even started yet. So for me, that was one thing. And also I say, you know, I can always, and I still feel like that. Now I feel like maybe I'll still do it, Mm -hmm. but I can do it later on. Mm -hmm. But that opportunity felt like something I needed to do right now. And so I don't regret it, but I do sometimes wonder because the whole literature thing was something I was so passionate about and loved and I chose And the vegan thing kind of just happened. Mm. So it's not, you know, I'm so, so, so grateful. But sometimes I'm like, oh, 
whenever I feel like this, I just, I'll just do it later. I, I love that. I mean, because yeah. you can, you can always go yeah. back. Yeah. The books are always waiting there for you. Yeah. So these college kids sign up for your one week vegan challenge along with 1200 other people or so in your inbox. What ultimately led to you saying this is going to be a business for you? That took another year. I didn't realize people were making money off of it. Like I remember the first time someone emailed me asking me how much I would charge for a sponsor post. I responded. I was outraged. I was like, what makes you think I'm for sale? <laughs> Never, never. And then, and and also, to be fair, when they offered, I thought they were talking about ten dollars. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that people were actually making money off of this. So it took a while for me. And then, so I kept having you know freelance jobs and doing something completely different. And then I had one, you know, two jobs where I was working for someone else, and I and I had. Two situations where I was sitting across from the person who had employed me. And this is in New York now. It, it, I, I think some of it was in Brussels. It was like the timeline is a little blurry. Mm -hmm. But I remember thinking, oh, because in between New York, I would go back. I see. And mm -hmm. I was, you know, and I remember hearing this voice in my head. Like, if, if you don't make sure that you work on your own dreams, someone's going to hire you to work on theirs. <sighs> and that's when I was like, I need to just try it. And I had no idea what I was doing. No idea. What was your dream, though? I figured I needed to find some way to make money off of this so I could continue doing that. And my whole dream was just to spread, you know, the message of veganism, you know, for sometimes. <laughs> Not really. Now I realize that that's probably how it came across to a lot of people. And I've since changed my stance on so many things. I'm still a very passionate vegan. But now I'm like... It was a little narrow-minded of me to be like, this is the only thing that matters. And there are so many other things that matter just as much, and we can care about so many things at once. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes cringe a little when I think back to how... Well, I think it's, but I think it's so beautiful because it gave you purpose mm -hmm. and a drive and it propelled you to do things that were uncomfortable and to kind of listen to the universe when I think many people would say I'm going to listen to the paycheck I'm going to listen to retirement plans I'm going to listen to my parents yeah. but you had at least something that was your own that was your own voice and that was kind of alone because like you said it took you two years to find another vegan <laughs> yeah so far, it sounds like Kim Julie is impervious to failure and self-doubt. She's always on the move, carving out her own path, walking through doors without really knowing what's on the other side. But it turns out that even Kim Julie has had to confront the phrase, yeah, this is just too hard. So you're working in between jobs, and at, at a certain point you said, hey, I'm not going to spend time fulfilling somebody else's dream. I'm going to use the same passion, the same energy, the same brains, the same, you know, time, resources to work on my own. Yeah. And is that what ultimately... So another thing holding me back is that I was not American. Mm. So I couldn't work in the States. So I was still relying on, you know, situations back in Europe, even if it was like remote, but I couldn't actually work here. So... I had so I had decided to give up. I was like, I'm giving up. I decided I'm going back to Europe. I'm not. This is not worth pursuing. It's too hard. And I had a friend, another Fernanda, two Fernandas from the same city, <laughs> different people. Fernanda, let's call her Fernanda P. Apparently, yeah, Peronetto. I had known her for only a year, 
And she is so interesting as a person. I've never met anyone like her. But so two days before my flight leaves, I have lunch with her. And we knew, like, we had met a handful of times. We didn't know each other that well. And so she's like, okay, so so what are you going to do with your life now? You're staying here. And I said, oh, no, I've decided to give up. And she goes, why? And then I tell her why. And every single argument I had, she just calmly looked at me and gave me the solution. You know, like, she was like, I was like, I don't have a visa. She was like, well, you can get a visa. This is the kind of visa you can get. This is the kind of visa I got. If I got it, you will get it. I was like, I don't have a lawyer, but you can get a lawyer. <laughs> I'm like, it's too expensive. I don't have the money. She's like, there are payment plans. There are this and that, and also this. And then I was like, oh, I read that for this kind of visa, you need 300 pages. Of She's like, you can literally print out your Instagram and every post counts as a page. And I was like, and at the end of the conversation, I had nothing left to say. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and meanwhile, you had a ticket back to Europe. And I, so I did go back. Mm -hmm. And then while I was gone, I planned everything to come back. And so a month later, I came back and started the whole process. I think that's remarkable because I think a lot of people would have gone back to Europe, gotten comfortable, gotten settled, especially because they were in their old stomping grounds. There's a lot about Europe that's appealing. What do you think it was that made you so freaking focused on getting back to New York City? I think I had a drive that it was kind of like, I was like, I just knew that I wanted it so badly. And I figured if I can try everything, and like I said before, it was all these doubts holding me back. But when she put it like that, I was like, I could do this. Had you not had that conversation a few days before going back to Europe, do you think you would have stayed in Europe? <clears throat> yes. Wow. 100%. Wow. So the universe was watching out for you that day. <laughs> well, she was. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because I still to this day tell her, I'm like, can you imagine if we hadn't had that conversation? And she was just like, hmm, well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So you get your ducks in a row, everything kind of ready and prepared, and you come back to New York in a month. It was so hard because it actually, the decision, like waiting, for, I was a little bit naive too, because I was like, I'm going to apply for that visa and then they're going to say yes. <laughs> so it took a little longer. So I ended up having to go to Canada for a little bit to stay with my cousin and then the back and forth. And then I finally, finally it all worked out. And then I and then I was like, oh, well, now what do I do? Because now I need an apartment. Yeah. So what did you do? So I decided I was going to do an online program that didn't exist. And I started selling it before it existed. What is the online program? <laughs> so the vegan reset. And I'm familiar with this program because I think I actually purchased it at one time. What is that? So it had started a while before. I think some company had contacted me and they were like, oh, we're going to do like you vegan thing and then people can sign up and they have to pay this much but they weren't getting any recipes they weren't getting any guidance it was just like i was kept thinking of all the things i would do better if this was my program uh. like i would actually make it a program because it was it was just a challenge it's like oh you do this but they're not telling you how so i was like thinking i was like i and simultaneously i was also in talks with charlie <laughs> who's our agent about doing a book potentially and I was still thinking of the concept and then both of them I was like oh this could be both a great book and a great program and then so I started selling it 
and like kind of like you know here's the pre-order bonus and a lot of people bought it and I was like well now I have to create it and I did and it was it was so much fun and so much work. it sounds a lot like what you actually did for those college students back in Brussels who were like, hey, like, I will go vegan for a week. Show me how. And that's why I kind of knew how to do it, because I still had, you know, like the blueprint. And I knew, OK, well, this is what I did then. And I just expanded it and turned it into, you know, like 28 days instead of seven. And it was great. And I did that for a long time. I will say it was a lot of work. But it was it was rewarding and it was great. And that's how that kind of then became the job. And simultaneously, mm -hmm. I also figured out that I had best of vegan. And I figured out that I could monetize that. And best of vegan, is that separate from Brussels vegan? So I started Brussels vegan. Six months later, I was going through a phase where I was going through a breakup feeling a little depressed and didn't want to post anything. Like the last thing I wanted to do was create art with fruit. <laughs> like it was just not. And I kept seeing other accounts that I loved. And I used to do these things even on Brussels Vegan where I would like on Thursdays, I would just like highlight an account and, and they would be so surprised and it was great. And a lot of people were, you know, giving each other shout outs. It was a very different time. <laughs> I mean, you know, people still do it, but in a very different way. And I figured during that time, it was like right around New Year's, I was like, I wish that's all I could do, which is just post other people's stuff. Because you didn't want to be like, out there. Not, I was just not feeling it. And then I was like, why don't I create another account where I, all I do is that? And then the name just came to me. I was like, Best of Vegan. Right. Makes total um, sense. Yeah. And I did that. And at the time, there weren't any accounts like that. There was Vegan Food Share. And it was a completely different concept. It was very much like, you know, all about comfort food and then pictures of people. And it was great. It was a great platform. And so, but Best of Vegan, I kind of had this thing. I was like, I want to show the most appetizing vegan food because I want to show non-vegans how amazing vegan food can be. And so I started at first just featuring my friends. <laughs> and I had a thousand followers the first night. Wow. Yeah. And then I kind of like just started from there. Wow. So basically, at a certain point, pretty early on, I'd say, in your return to New York, you had the vegan reset, which was, you know, fairly, it sounds like a fairly functional way to monetize what you had, your skill, your knowledge, yeah. as well as the community that was already kind of building around you. But then you also had Best of Vegan, which it sounds like from the very get-go had a very willing community who was interested at least in plant-based eating. Yes. And I didn't realize that I could monetize. Like that too took me a very long time. And I started when I finally did, I think the very first sponsored post, I asked for $50 and I felt so guilty. Because <laughs> I was like, they're going to like, they're going to like oh no we spend way too much and I was I was doing the photography <laughs> recipe. I was doing all that and and I just had no idea you know about I had, I'd never been good with money I never had money I'd never made more than a certain amount in Europe 1500 a month after taxes a very it's a good salary you mm -hmm. know so I was my thinking was just very very different and I used to make 10 hour 10 10 euros an hour and that was great so I had no sense of business whatsoever, which ended up being a little problematic because I, like, as soon as money started coming in, I was like, oh, 
let's spend it, <laughs> you know? Let's outsource, let's hire people, let's do this, let's move. And I didn't realize that like, oh, what you actually should do is save <laughs> and be more responsible. So that took, and I'm still learning, like it took a very long time to kind of learn that. One of my favorite things when talking to entrepreneurs, which I certainly consider you to be basically a small business owner, is kind of that stumbling period in the beginning where you do make mistakes, whether they're financial, operational, branding, marketing, there are all sorts of things that you can sort of stumble on during those earlier years. And I was talking to Amy Porterfield. She's like the owner of this incredibly successful multi-million dollar online digital course empire, I feel like. And she told me, she's like, yeah, I think she made less than $200 on her first online course. Now they make $8 million, but her first one was like less than 200 bucks. And it just always inspires me to hear people like her say, notwithstanding the fact that I had my back against the wall, that in every sense of the word, that first foray into doing that thing that I'd always, you know, dreamt of doing, being my own boss was pretty much a dismal failure and that she was embarrassed and that she felt totally deflated. She kind of picked herself up, you know, by the bootstraps and said, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to learn from my mistakes. Were there ever points, you know, whether it was before or after doing the vegan reset, before or after coming to New York, you know, monetizing what in all respects was a viral Instagram account Certainly in, back in that day, you know, with the numbers that you were drawing, that you had to have that pep talk with yourself or even rely upon the freaking universe to kind of throw you a bone or something like that. So before, even before the online program and everything, I started with ebooks and I did an ebook. I think the first one was kind of like a practical guide to going vegan and I, for some reason, I thought Instagram followers translated to sales, mm -hmm. which they just absolutely do not. Sometimes they do, but not to the extent that people think they do. And I think I sold, I think I made $300. $300. A little bit better than Amy. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, my issue was that it wasn't a recipe book. Not realizing a recipe ebook isn't necessarily something everyone will buy either. So I made the smoothie recipe ebook and it didn't sell either. And I was like, I was running out of money. <laughs> and I remember having, and my dad was dead. So I couldn't mm -hmm. ask him and that not, he also died in debt. So it wasn't even like he left anything or, you know, could have helped me. And my mom also couldn't, she lives month to month. And I remember speaking to someone who's, he <laughs> told me, just ask your mom. And I didn't understand what he meant. I was like, oh, yeah, I should ask her what she would do, you know. Um. And so I asked her. She's like, oh, you know, maybe you need to come back, maybe. And so I, I was like, you know, this is what she said. And the friend said, I don't understand why your mom wouldn't just give you a few thousand. And I was like, she doesn't have them, <laughs> you know. And it was weird. And then so at that point, there was a moment when I was very, very close to being defeated. And I went to see my friend Fernanda, the Brazilian girl who lived in New York, and and she, she let me stay at her place for free for a few months. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what allowed me. So I'll always be grateful to her for that. So that's what kind of allowed me to kind of recalibrate and 
just try again. Mm-hmm. And it was, I honestly, I think the main reason is that I had no choice. And I and I'm definitely saying 100% if I hadn't had her help, there was no way I could have done it, even if I was trying again. So I needed her help to even try again. But it was kind of like, if I had had like a lot of money, I don't think I, I would have tried harder. It's, I think sometimes when you don't have a choice, you're just forced to be, you know, to try more things. There's that urgency. But there were mm-hmm. so many moments where I was like, this is just never going to work. And you had to tell yourself, well, I got to keep trying anyway. It, it wasn't even a conversation. Like, I just knew I had to try. But I felt very, I felt like a failure. I really did. I felt like, how is it that I'm so bad at this? <laughs> you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I was like, well, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just, and I felt almost like, it was weird because there are good things happening simultaneously, like, you know, New York and the Lisa and like all of these things. And then I was just like, I wish like everything could just be good <laughs> all the time, but that's not how life works. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm grateful for all those experience cause, experiences because I learned a lot. And I think over the years, I think there was also a moment where there was a 2017 was the year when all of a sudden it looked like everything was just going to work out for good. You know, I got I got the book deal. I got this. I got that. And I was like, this is amazing. And I think it made me a little bit arrogant. And I'm not proud of that. And I think back and I'm like, oh, no. And I so I had more than I had ever had in my entire life, which wasn't necessarily even that much it was just for me it was a lot like it was like amazing I had this like amazing apartment in Soho I was and I was miserable Mm. and I was like I don't I don't think I'm meant to be an entrepreneur I'm certainly not meant to be someone else's boss not good at it I don't like it I hate being I I can't even be responsible for myself you know I don't want children I can I Right now, I left three plants in Belgium. They're probably going to die, <laughs> you know, in the moment like that. Like, I was just like, I don't think this is the life I want. And so the year after, I scaled down the business, and I went to a smaller apartment, and I just scaled down and down and down and down until I ended up moving back to Belgium because of it. Mm. I was like, I can live in Belgium, pay very little, <laughs> and still work online. And I can travel because that's what makes me happiest. And like now I can travel, go to places and still like, like for instance, last year I spent a month in Spain, my rent in Belgium, plus my rent in Spain, plus the travel, plus all of the food, plus everything I spent during that month, all combined was still a lot cheaper than Mm. my rent in New York. Mm -hmm. And I still love New York. New York is still the best place on the planet. And I will come back as often as I can. So this is not at all anti-New York. But I think it was just anti-me being part of a hustle culture that I wasn't built for. Mm -hmm. And I think some people are and they're great at it. But I just, I honestly, if I really think about it, what I want to do with my life is just chill and and meet nice people and also do meaningful work but in a way that doesn't make me miserable yeah I think that's the dream of many 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 people but what I find so interesting about your story is somewhere along the way whether it's just kind of naturally built into you or something that you learn from maybe your father your grandmother maybe even your mom Mm -hmm. like you always gave yourself permission to make mistakes, to fail, to not feel good about things, mm-hmm. and still 
be like, okay, it's okay. I can always move on from this. There's always some place to go next, even if where I am right now kind of stinks, you know? Yeah, I think I attribute a lot of that to my parents' expectations of me being extremely low. <laughs> the bar was so low I could just jump over it and I'm not saying they weren't proud I just think that it wasn't that kind of culture and I think in the United there are certain environments first in the United States but then also I think particularly immigrants in the United States like when I talk to friends like Samantha you know whose parents are Jamaican and you (laughs) you know it's like you know, as immigrants, like your kids are going to have to work so much harder and the system is already against them. So I think there is a lot more pressure for their own good. Mm. And I think that's great. And in Europe, I will say because the system is a, I don't want to say it's socialist because it's not, but it's like democratic socialist and it's, it's a lot more, there's a safety net. So you're kind of taught to aim for you know, not necessarily the stars, but like, why would you risk it all if you can just like have a comfortable life just like that? But you were willing to risk so much. That's why I think that's the mentality thing where I felt like I didn't belong there. And then I came to New York and I was like, oh, this is where I belong, <laughs> you know, because I, I remember I tried to explain it to friends and I was like, I was in Brussels and I told friends, let's build a time machine. They would look at me and be like, be realistic. And then I came to New York and I would tell, I mean, I didn't, but if I were, like, I would tell people, like, if I were to tell people, let's build a time machine, they'd be like, when did we start? Mm. And that energy was just so infectious. And I, and I honestly do not think for a second I ever would have written books. I ever would have done any of what I've done if it wasn't for being in New York. And I'm not saying that you can't do it in Europe. But I think it's harder in Europe to kind of like go against the grain. I think if I was, if I had stayed in Europe, I would have either done my my PhD or I would have just gotten a full-time job and that would have been it. And it would have been a very comfortable life, but there was something missing. Hmm. Many people know Kim Julie the way I first grew to know her, the founder of a massive vegan Instagram account, the author of a fantastic vegan cookbook, the creator of a vegan eating guide that helps thousands of people transition to a more compassionate diet. Vegan, vegan, vegan. It's easy to pigeonhole other people and even ourselves into these types of categories. But one of the amazing things about Kim Julie is how she never allows herself to be categorized. She's always pushing the boundaries of who she is and in so doing, redefining the scope of compassion. For the latter part of our chat, I wanted to discuss how she's helped to change the narrative on a topic that's been challenging to me on a very personal level. So earlier you had said something which I want to talk a little bit about. I know we've been talking for like a very long time and I don't want to take up the rest of your life, but there was something that you mentioned earlier was that your stance has evolved when it comes to veganism. And I don't even know if that's really the right way to put it. I think you've just expanded your views of compassion to include a lot more than just animals. And having followed your account for now, both Best of Vegan and Brussels Vegan in its current form and and all of those things, I know that you're an advocate for not just animals now. I feel like you're an advocate for Anyone whose voice has been silenced, muzzled, muted, Mm. you know, however you want to call it, you have been such a role model for, I think, many 
content creators, influencers, Instagrammers, whatever you want to call it, on how to be responsible, you know, members of that digital space when it comes to grappling with a lot of the things that are happening politically, sociologically in our country, in the United States, and of course, outside of the United States. One of the things that I learned very specifically from following your accounts and even from our conversations was, you know, back when this is before I was vegan, in 2013, I would scroll through my Instagram account and like 90% of my feed was body transformation accounts, the before and after photos. Like this is what I was 10 months ago and look at me now, you know? And I remember feeling inspired is really not a good word because it connotes something good, but it did motivate me to radically change my diet and, you know, how much I was exercising, what kind of exercise I was doing. But I think it did it in a very non-nuanced way, which ultimately led me into a lot of trouble with, you know, body dysmorphic disorder and disordered eating. And I remember one time, I think you posted about it, or you may have even said something to me in a very nice, gentle way, which was, you know, Joanne, you post these before and after photos. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, hey, this is like, you know, I'm trying to inspire people. Like, this is what I look like back then. And this is what I look like now, you know? And I remember feeling a little bit rebuked, but in a really good way by something you said about that can be very harmful mm. to people because how do you know if there isn't someone on the other side of your Instagram who's looking at your before photo and wishing that that was their after photo and you've now just indicted that aspiration and after that, I was like, okay, I am never posting a before and after photo ever again because I never want to hurt people or trigger people, right? And ultimately... One of the things that I've learned so much from your Instagram account is about being as inclusive as possible while also understanding that health has traditionally been viewed through a very narrow lens, mm -hmm. just fitness. I mean, it's just what does your body look like? That is a proxy for health. But one of the things that I think you do so good at kind of challenging is well, what if health is also about mental health? Mm. What about if health should be mostly about mental health, which can then lead yeah. to healthy understanding of fitness and physical health? What has that journey been like? And how do you continue to frame that discussion in a way that is productive for yeah. your community? Especially because, as you said, your original adoption of the vegan diet had nothing to do with health. Mm -hmm. I think I had my own evolution to go through. Cause when you say these things, like I learned that because I did that too. <laughs> so I had posted a before and after photo. And the only thing I was trying to prove with that is to be just perfectly honest. I wanted people who looked at my current version to know that I used to be worse mm. so that they wouldn't judge me for still not being perfect. Mm. That was my number one thing. That was why I posted it. I did not think of anyone else. I didn't think of like, of course I was like, you know, this can inspire and this can, but for me, I felt very, very, very intimidated and excluded from the vegan community because there was this like stereotype of 
vegans are super skinny. And I'm like, I went vegan two weeks ago. What do you expect me to do? And I even had a discussion once, like within the first month with this girl, who was a friend of a friend. She was a nutrition student. And it almost, and at that point, you know, I now looking back, I realized there was absolutely nothing wrong with me, but I didn't feel good in my body. Like I felt like I was overweight and all that. And it felt like it doesn't even matter what I say. She's won the argument because she's skinny. Because <laughs> mm. I was arguing, you know, you can be healthy as a vegan. You can be, you know. And because I was expected to be an expert, they won. <laughs> and it almost, I felt so defeated because I was like, she's not going to listen to anything I say unless I look the part. And I was just like, and then I, and then online, it got even worse because I was like, I would sometimes see people who happen to just be very thin and then they would go vegan and then like a week later they're like celebrated as these vegan experts. Mm. Meanwhile, here I am like with years of experience and I'm not taken seriously because I don't look like them. And I just always felt like that was so weird. And then of course I had my own struggles with that and I posted that photo I've since archived it. And like I said, I. And I used to, that used to be my narrative. Every single time I would meet a vegans, never other people, but vegans, it would just be like talking about my story and how it used to be worse. Defending I yourself. to understand yeah. why I look like this now, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not there yet. I'm still on my journey. Just don't judge me, please. <laughs> and I think there was like, it was a mix of over the years starting to read a lot about, you know, like anti-diet culture which I also have mixed feelings about, but you know, like reading about that and then having, I think one moment with a dear friend of mine, I love her, adore her, but she, she's we're the same height and she's, she's, you know, in shape. It's great. She's like, and she looks at me and she goes, I really, really need to lose five pounds. Like I really do. And I look at her and I go, you do realize that looking at yourself that which would be my goal mm. and it's saying you need to be better is making me feel like I will never get there and I know that you don't mean that you know and that's kind of like and she was like oh I did not realize because I know people don't realize I didn't realize it when I posted that photo I really didn't and then I realized like you know what is what is the actual point of before and after photos motivation but like based on what based on the fact that like the before is awful and you don't ever want to be like that and the after is what you need to do, what you need to be. And, you know, you need to do all these things to get there. And it doesn't matter how you get there. And that's where I think to me, the health debate comes in. Cause I'm like, it's been proven that shaming someone for their weight is worse for their health than their weight. So the whole argument where people are like health policing other people, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. They just can't stand somebody existing and not feeling terror, so ashamed of themselves that they won't show themselves. And I say that, and I still have that shame, <laughs> you know? It's like, so I know it's not, you know, we're all still learning. And I realized, like, if obsessing over eating a donut is, if, if you're obsessing over it and you can't do it, that's not good for your mental health, you know? So I think health for me is is something holistic, where it's, it's you know, it's definitely mental health first, it's also physical health, but not in the way that we, you know, like it's it's just why is it only body weight that's associated with that? Like we don't shame people who smoke the same way. Like we do, but not in that same way. 
you know, and even people who are extremely skinny, we don't shame them the way we shame fat people. Mm -hmm. There is so much disgust and shame and like, and it's, and if people actually looked into what the causes are of people gaining weight, it's very often trauma. It's genetic. It's very, very rarely somebody just deciding, hey. You're... I'm just going to be undisciplined. Yeah. It's that bad. And even like, you know, and then there are some people who they just happen to be fat, whatever the reason. And then they decide I'm happy like this. And to be also very honest with you, at my highest weight, the weight was never the issue. It's the world I live in, mm. you know? And I have often, this is why, like, it was very difficult over the years, like just being in the public eye, which I've removed myself from because of that. That's why you don't see any, like barely any photos of me. And part of me wishes I could change that. But another part of me is like, why would I even subject myself to that ever? You know? And then there is also the physical health part, which is where I sometimes have mixed feelings about the whole anti-diet culture thing where they say, you know, like, I agree that morally, Kale is a donut, donut is kale, but physically it's just not. <laughs> Which doesn't mean that we shouldn't eat the donut. We're mm -hmm. still gonna eat the donut. But let's also like love kale. Like I learned to love kale and I love it. So I think we can kind of embrace both. And my own father died at age 53 of a heart attack. He was extreme. I don't like the word overweight because then I also don't like the word obese, but he was, you know, he had eaten a lot and he had smoked a lot which I don't even know which one contributed more. We don't know that, but everyone's going to say, you know, it's like probably the weight. No, maybe the cigarettes, maybe that, maybe it was work. Or something else. I mean, who knows? We don't know, mm -hmm. but he had a heart attack. So to me, there was an element of veganism when I started looking more into plant-based nutrition where I was like, oh, this could have saved him. Yes. You know, and I felt like, oh, damn it. If only I'd found this sooner. But nothing could have saved him if he didn't want that, you know? But that's why for me, I do embrace, you know, plant-based living for health. But I also embrace balance. <laughs> I also embrace like the journey just not being easy. And you mentioned body dysmorphic disorder. I got diagnosed with that. And the pandemic made it a million times worse because I was so isolated. Mm -hmm. And I'm an introvert. So I was like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't realize until suddenly I was too afraid to get on Zoom calls. Mm. I was like, oh, what's happening? I don't understand, you know? And then I, would, I was working on this book <laughs> and I would get pressure. and like, oh, when the book comes out, you're going to have to show it. And I was like, I don't know that I can. Until I made the conscious decision, like I, and you actually helped me with that. Because I told you, I was like, you know, they're expecting me to be ready by then. <laughs> And then I was like, and I'm frustrated because I'm not. And then you said, you don't know when you're going to get there. And it was almost like just saying that gave me permission to just be like, I need to put myself first, even if that means I don't sell any books, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. I need to just take the. It's going to take the time it takes. Mm. And you say, you know, that's the frustrating part. And I, I know you used that analogy. Wait, do you remember the, the running one? Yeah, the running one where like sometimes the most 
difficult races or runs are the ones where you don't know where it's going to end, you know, and you wish that there was a stopping point. And when you know where the stopping point is, it becomes so much easier to just say, hey, I'm just going to, you know, muscle through this because I know there's only a mile left. But when you don't know how much is left, it becomes much harder. And for those who may not be familiar, body dysmorphic disorder basically means your brain doesn't see what's there. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much you know it, it's like you can't just tell yourself that you, hey, I know reality is not as bad as I think it is. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense, but that's part of it. And there are ways to get better. For instance, cognitive behavioral therapy, which I started. Mm -hmm. And my therapist is amazing. And she also was like... It doesn't work like that. Like you don't, you can't just say on demand by the stage. Like it's gonna take the time that it takes. Takes, yeah. You know? And you said something else, which also. Helped <laughs> <up>. <laughs> this is where I think I told you. Like, oh. I, I started telling my therapist, and then my friend Joanne. <laughs> and then she was like, "Is Joanne a life?" <laughs> and I was like, oh, "Yeah." <laughs> you know? What do you mean? I was like, "Well, she makes Korean food. Well, she gives the life advice." She was like, oh, interesting. (laughs) But you said to me something that, because I have this thing too, that's very all or nothing thinking. You know, it's either this is all amazing or it's all bad. But I have a very hard time thinking in between. And I said to you, because I see you, you know, we're close friends. We've been friends for so many years. And you seem to be so comfortable in front of the camera, you know. And so I told you, and I was like, I wish I could love it. I, I want to love it as much as you love it. And you're like, first of all, I don't love it. <laughs> it's not, you know, I had to get myself used to it. And then, you know, and then you said, maybe loving it is too, is, is not the goal to reach for. Maybe you can aim for not hating it. And I was like, oh, true. That's, that's an option, you know? So that's kind of like what I'm currently working on. And it's it's so bizarre because it's this thing that I usually never talk about public. I talk with my friends, but I do sometimes think like people have noticed that they never see me, <laughs> you know, but that's why. I think that one of the cool things that I've learned, you know, from accounts like yours or others on TikTok is applying that same approach to my body. I don't have to love my body. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have to be like, I have the best body in the whole world. Like, I don't have to. Maybe the goal, even if it's intermediate, is Mm -hmm. to say, I don't hate my body. Yeah. You know, my body is great. It does all these things. It's functional. Like, I have two legs. I'm able to run half marathons. I'm able to do a lot, you know, and and I celebrate my body. But it's also okay to just be like, yeah, but I'm not in love with everything about my body. You know, like, there are things about it that I don't love, like, you know, my husband will hate that I'm saying this, but I don't like my nose, you know, and and stuff like that. (laughs) So stuff like that. And I think that that was also eye-opening to me was maybe I'm asking too much of myself right now Mm. to be falling in love with my body. Maybe let's just aim a little bit lower and say, let's just not hate your body right now. Your body deserves better than that, you know? Speaking of your book, the one that you're saying that you don't care, okay, like no, nobody's going to buy the book. Well, no, look, <laughs> you know what? I I said to myself, the only way I will do another book, because I did a first one a few years ago, and that was such a learning experience. And I said, the only way I will do a second book is if 
my only goal is to be proud of it. And then if it sells one copy, I'm the happiest. And this is why now I'm like, I'm not too concerned about it. I also honestly believe it's not a book that solves an immediate problem. You know, it's kind of like more like a book that's nice to have. <laughs> okay, well, we're not doing a terribly good job. <laughs> no, 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 that's, not what I mean. like, that's not what I'm trying to say is that's why it might take a little bit longer for mm. it to take off. Like, and that's why I'm not that concerned about it. You know, it's not something where people are like, Oh, it's January. Let's buy this. And this is, but I, I hope that when people see it, they'll, they'll, they'll like it. And they'll, you know, cause I love it. I'm just very, very, very proud of it. And, you know, amazing people are part of the book, including you, <laughs> which, you know, which was like one of my favorite parts of this whole book is that it is, there's a cult, like a lot of like majority of the recipes are mine and then there are collaborations, which some of them, like, for instance, I wasn't going to tell you, hey, let me, let me create a video. <laughs> <laughs> you, no, it's like, of course, like, you, you know what you're doing. So yours, the, so those are contributions. And I think it's about, like, 15 to 20 recipes out of the 100. And then there were others where it was collaborations with friends. Well, maybe I should first explain what the book is about. You could do that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's called Best of Vegan, mm -hmm. <laughs> like the platform Best of Vegan. And it's essentially a bird's eye view of what it is to be vegan. Because one of the regrets with my first book was that I, I intentionally made it plant-based, like no, no processed foods and all that. And I felt like if this is the first book that people see when they're vegan, that is not a complete picture of what veganism is. It is one aspect. So I wanted to create a book where I could be like, to both longtime vegans and new vegans, be like, okay, this gives you an idea of what vegan food can be. And so it's five parts. It's one that's called I Don't Want Salad. <laughs> Comfort food. It's based on the story. I don't know why it's called that way. Is in the book. It's essentially dedicated to my brother because mm -hmm. he was like, I'll eat vegan if it's, like comfort food I will not eat a salad <laughs> and then there's cultural food and that kind of was born out of discussions with the publisher where they said you know if we call it best of vegan it has to like include the best of vegan and then they were like oh and then you could do like recipes from all over the world and I said I not <laughs> if I don't collaborate with people from those cultures because to me I think cooking recipes from other cultures is one of the most fun things you can do but I think if you're profiting off of it, like in terms of like a, selling a book or, you know, I haven't found a way to do that in a way that's not appropriating that culture. And I don't want to do that. And I wouldn't be good at it because I'm not from that culture. Mm. So I was like, you know, I would have to collaborate with people like and I wanted to be not just bloggers, I wanted to be most of all friends. And I wanted to be a mix of friends and family. And then some people who happen to also be authors and, you know, bloggers. And that's and they were amazing about that. They were like, Yeah, cool. Because I, I really did not think they would let me do collaborations with friends from high school. <laughs> like, it's not, I, they, they were like, you just you just go for it. They, they were great about that. Especially Lisa, my main editor. She, she was really she was like, every idea I had, she was like, go for it you know I really really appreciate that and so that's how it like kind of started so some of them are like contributions like yours which is amazing yay and there's always a story that goes with it and then some were like you know I did collaborations with friends who don't necessarily cook 
but they grew up with mm. dishes. So it was, and they were all over the world. So I would be like hours spent on the phone and then them calling grandmas and then this. And I think it's this. And then me trying like 10, 15, 20 different versions and then sending them one version and then trying and then altering it until it was perfect. So actually it was a lot more work than the first book because it was like, you know, it required mm. a lot more because I had to get their approval to make sure it's actually what it tasted like when what they were, you know, it was veganized. One of them, my one of my favorites is with my friend Danny from New Zealand. He's Maori. It was a recipe. <laughs> he was like, he was like, well, there's a lot of meat in it. So I don't know how we're going to, I'm like, you, you let, let that, leave that part up to me. And so it was just, and his, his partner, she added some, you know, from her, she's Maori too. So mm -hmm. it's like, it was just all coming together. And it was just so much fun being on the phone with like New Zealand. Someone I met there 20 plus years ago, that, no, exactly 20 years ago. And then like him telling me the stories of how his grandparents made this for his dad and then this, and then like finding ways of veganizing it. And it was just so much fun. And I think one other goal of mine was to include cultures that we don't necessarily try all the time. Mm. Definitely have some of the more classic ones, you know, like Chinese and Italian, because they're amazing. But also have, you know, there's a Welsh recipe by Gaz Oakley. Oh, wow. He's he's so, so sweet. So talented. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's, you know, and then there's like a Kurdish recipe by Sayram Sinjari, who's mm. phenomenal, which also with yours and then Lloyd and Saron the whole idea I was gonna make it a subchapter but they were like oh, maybe we just <laughs> leave it part of me part of the book of that whole of the cultural chapter but I love this whole feeling and topic of being in between cultures mm. and I loved how in your case it kind of manifested as you know and it's in the introduction of how you were like as a kid trying to be so American mm -hmm. rejecting Korean culture and then embracing it you know and then so that's why the recipes are Korean and it's just like celebrating that and then in the case of Saran and Lloyd it was more like so Lloyd is of Jamaican origin raised in Quebec Canada and Saran is of Kurdish origin and raised in Sweden and there it was it started with phone calls with Lloyd where we talked of we initially talked about which culture should we choose <laughs> makes sense and then I was like why don't we just do both because that makes so much sense you know and then just talking about how like it doesn't have to be either or it can be both so that's why there's a Jamaican next to a Canadian recipe and then for her it is a Kurdish next to a Swedish recipe and then there's also with my friend Renz there's a Frisian recipe which both my grandmother and then her you know her ancestors and like little like recipes like that from cultures that you wouldn't necessarily mm. think of and I really love that. Also because, you know, while we're talking of cultural appropriation, I sometimes feel like, you know, there are, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. There are a lot of white bloggers who, and I, I am a white blogger, so it's like, who will often like take recipes from cultures. And I have no doubt that it's initially because those recipes are just really amazing. You know, but it does create issues where it's like, but if it's at the expense of bloggers from that culture, that's problematic. And I kind of often think like there are so many cultures within Europe, you know, where there are so many foods that we can try and explore 
you know, that like we don't always have to resort to that. Mm. And we can find ways of doing that and still honoring, you know, whether that's be like, give, you know, give, and some people are starting to do that, give proper credit or, you know, but, you know, that's just one part of it. <laughs> well, I can understand why you're so proud of this book. Yeah. I feel like you're drawing upon clearly your love of traveling, your love of experiencing other cultures, meeting new people, trying different things, and challenging yourself emotionally, intellectually, geographically <laughs> to bring together a very curated, like you said, bird's eye view of something that you're very passionate about. I think the book is beautiful. I mean, just so beautiful. I think sometimes people don't understand what a talented photographer you are. You photograph the whole book, which I find astounding. I think there's a handful of ones where I had help. Okay. But 90%. <laughs> yes. Well, it's beautifully photographed. The food looks so enticing. The recipes are actually pretty, for the most part, I think pretty straightforward. Like there isn't a situation where I'm like, okay, so I'm going to have to spend three days to prepare this dish, which sometimes I do find in a lot of cookbooks where I'm like, this is too complicated for me. I'm a home cook. Just you know, I don't have any culinary background. I just want to be able to make dinner today. And I feel like a lot of the recipes are like that. But as you said, they celebrate these stories that often get overlooked, particularly when we're approaching cultural cuisines that aren't familiar to you. You're like, I just want to make the food. I'm not interested. But I love that you got to hear the stories of your friend from New Zealand and, and how this dish became to be a central part of his dinner table and his life. And I think the book does a really good job of that. What is next for you? You have two books under your belt. You have a thriving business. You're one of the first, really, you know, you're an OG content creator who's turned it into a business. And now you're back in Belgium, but somehow also in New York right now. <laughs> like what's what's on deck for you? Okay, so one thing I did forget to say is that after the cultural part, there is a healthy-ish recipe mm. part, and then baking and basics. So just so to complete the picture, it's a perfect bird's eye view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for me, I I think what's next is creating, finding ways to keep creating a life that makes just just makes me happy. You know, that's really it. It's like I don't need to be like super wealthy. I don't need. I just need like the you know, I, I do want a comfortable life, but I want, I just, I don't need that much to be happy. I realized. And the moment I realized that I was like, oh, this is actually good information. To <laughs> and so now concretely speaking, so I'm based in Austin. And one of the reasons I got that apartment is because it was very affordable. It's right by the beach. It's close to my grandma's like an hour away. That was a very important aspect. And it's kind of allowing me to have a home base that I can always go back to that doesn't cost a lot and that feels very safe. For me, safety was very important. But essentially, I'm going to use it as a home base. Like, I want to travel. Like, right now, spending a few months in New York and then going to L.A. and just, you know, traveling around. I like traveling in a way where I spend a good amount of time, which also ends up being cheaper in the long run. So I would love to go to Mexico City. I want to go to Brazil for a few months. Like, that's just my goal in life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then essentially, you know, I recently had a discussion with someone where I said, I feel like I have to choose. I can't do it all. 
And at the end of the discussion, the conclusion was, because then I was like, but I want to do it all. <laughs> like, I want to have vegan reset. I want to have best of vegan. I also want to have, you know, my own stuff. And then I was like, I just can't do it all right now. And I can't do it all at once. So that's kind of a very vague way of, you know, explaining. But concretely speaking, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to keep going and, you know. See where it takes you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, with two books under your belt, two beautiful books, even if you have regrets with the first one, that is one of my favorite cookbooks. <laughs> and I'm really excited to truly dive into the second one. For those of you who are listening, you can find Kim Julie and her work and her continued curation of beautiful vegan content on at Best of Vegan as well as bestofvegan.com. Is that right? And now, of course, the best of vegan cookbook. So with that, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you for having me. I know I could talk to you for a very much longer. I feel like there's at least five topics that I wanted to cover that unfortunately, like it's getting dark outside and we have a dinner reservation. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you. you see? I wasn't joking when I said that I was glued to Kim Julie's voice. And am I the only one who thinks she's also got kind of like a sneaky sense of humor? The kind that finds you laughing before you realize she's been clever? Next week on our debrief episode, we'll dig into some of the thoughts Kim Julie's gentle but persistent confrontation of self-doubt inspired in me. But good stories, I find, are like good meals, and I'd like to give you the space to really enjoy this one before we digest it. So thank you all for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. If you're new to the podcast, we have episodes every week, so hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on next week's debrief or other stories that will inspire you to grab a hold of your dreams and construct purpose out of your day-to-day. Otherwise, in the meantime... I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day.